Our scripture readings for today call our attention to one of the most important questions that we can ask as human beings and has been asked up and down the ages since the dawn of human civilization. What happens to us after we die? Philosophers, religious figures, artists, scientists, all have given, remarkably, a somewhat short range of answers with various additions, a couple of different perspectives on life after death. Here are just a few of the options, then, that have been on the intellectual table over the history of humanity. I think the first one is dualism. And that would probably be best represented by Plato. Plato, perhaps, was the greatest of the Greek philosophers. We as priests are forced, before we study philosophy, uh, theology, to first get a bachelor's degree in philosophy. Because we have to look at the history of how humanity thinks before we ever get to how God thinks. So Plato believed when a person dies, the soul escapes from the prison of the body. Even as the body decays into nothingness, the soul lives in a higher existence, what Plato called the realm of the form. This is a dualistic approach. The person in dualism, dualism is not one, but he's dual, he's two. A body and a soul. And only really the part that is the soul is truly the human. The body is just an empty shell. It isn't what makes us human. This dualistic view of life after death has been surprisingly influential, influential upon much religious thought through the ages, both in Western thought and in Eastern thought. I'll give you an example from the East. Hinduism which teaches the doctrine of reincarnation, along with Buddhism. It holds to a version of the dualism of body and soul. When the soul in Hinduism uh, uh, you know, sheds the thing that holds it, the body, through death, then it simply passes on to a version of like what Plato would describe the realm of the form. It continues to live until it takes another body in this earthly life. And it will have a higher degree of existence or a lower degree of earthly existence based on how it conducted itself while alive. So a human person could then become, in the next edition of the soul's existence in an earthly being, a bug or a dog. Or a dog or a bug could eventually become a human being. This reincarnation of the, the anima, the essence of, uh, of a living being, of, of the soul, continues through many cycles until the soul is finally purified and no longer held bound to the material world. This journey could take thousands of years. Number two, Greek and Roman mythology, and even in early Old Testament thought, 
present another idea about life after death. For the Greeks, they called it Hades. The Romans had a slight variation on it. And then, and for the Jews, Sheol. It was an underworld, a place where the soul goes after death, so it continues to exist. The body, again, empty shell. It, it, it dies, never to be resurrected. It, this place is a dark, listless, and uninspiring realm of existence. There is no heaven, no reincarnation, no hope of coming back to life again on earth. One is perpetually bored. Souls remain in existence, but in a shadowy form and with little hope for their future. Number three, nothing after death. This is another view on life after death. You die, you go into the grave, you cease to exist ever again. There is no afterlife. Remarkably, it is surprising to learn, at least to us moderns, that this view about death has not enjoyed many adherents among the major historic and world religions thinkers, philosophers, poets, and artists. In fact, it has only been in modern times as peoples and cultures shed the one thing that has accompanied us since the dawn of human civilization, a belief in God, that atheism has begun to promote the view of nothing after death. We do, however, see this view in the Old Testament. Early on, as God was forming his people, he led them to consider several views on death, getting them ready ultimately for the reality of the resurrection of the body. Not just the soul, but also the body, which leads to the fourth consideration today, the resurrection of the body. This is where, in our first reading, this comes into play from 2 Maccabees, which is an Old Testament reading. It offers a view of the afterlife that is truly distinctive, and unlike any other in the history of humanity up to it and since it. A couple hundred years, here's the background, before the birth of Jesus Christ, the Jews were in the Holy Land and were being heavily persecuted by a foreign power. In today's first reading, an entire family faced the threat of execution if they would not let go of their religious beliefs, identity, and practices. They refused to cave in to the pressures of their, of their persecutors. So, one by one, each of the sons dies for his faith. Listen to what one of the sons says before he's executed. You are depriving us of this present life, but the king of the world will raise us up to live again forever. Another son states before he dies, it is my choice to die at the hands of men with the hope that God gives of being raised up by him. Each son demonstrates the growing belief among the Jews that when a person dies, then at the end of the ages, he or she will be raised up bodily again and reunited with their soul. 
At the fullness of time, all bodies will be transformed from the dust of the earth. God who created everything out of nothing over time in the fullness of time will reconstitute even the molecules that used to make us a body. Bring them, each one of them back together again and the person will become one. One soul with one's own body. One person, one identity, fully alive at the hands of the creator of the universe. This is not dualism. This is not Sheol or Hades. This is not recreation. And this is not the nothingness of death. No. This is distinctive. The doctrine of the resurrection of the body. It is against this background that we hear from Jesus Christ, the Son of the only one living true God, in our Gospel reading in Luke 20 today. He is asked a question about the afterlife meant to mock a belief in the resurrection. What's interesting is that the question comes from Jews themselves, who God takes through the gamut of the world views of, from religions of what people believed about after death. This comes from the Sadducees, who are the oldest part, the oldest group of the Sanhedrin, which oversaw Israel from a religious point of view. The Sanhedrin never developed beyond the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And so that's why they quote from Moses. Here's the story. A woman has seven husbands in this life. Whose husband, whose wife will she be in heaven? Jesus responds, reveals his opponent's lack of understanding about the resurrected life. His opponents presuppose that the resurrected life will be pretty much like life before death. So obviously, the woman will have to be the wife of one of her seven husbands, right? Jesus answers that people in the resurrected life neither marry nor are given to marriage. That is, one of the main purposes of marriage that we learn from the Old Testament from the book of Genesis itself, is the propagation of the human species. Precisely because we are mortal. Because each of us will die, God gave marriage to ensure that humanity, the one creature made in his image and likeness, continues from generation to generation, does not go into extinction. However, in the life of heaven, there is no longer any death. No one dies in heaven. Therefore, marriage is not necessary in heaven as it is now. Likewise, God gives man and woman to each other so that they can help each other on the, their journey to get into heaven through the grace of God. Another very important part of marriage here and now. Once they arrive in the resurrected life, they are in the presence of God forever, and they do not need the help of the exclusive relationship of marriage because they have this inclusive relationship with God and with everyone else 
through him. The point that Jesus is making, the resurrected life is an embodied life. Yes. But it's also an elevated, transfigured, and transformed embodied life. No longer saddled with mortality, but clothed with immortality. It is not held to their earthly, bodily ways of living, but to the eternal ways of God. This gospel from Luke 20 is a great anticipation of one of the central tenets of our faith as Christians. The resurrection of Jesus is intimately tied to our own resurrection. God became human. God, through Jesus, experienced our mortality. Christ died upon a cross. His body laid in the tomb for three days, dead. Christ rose again, body and soul united, integrated forever in the life of eternity. Christ's resurrection from the dead changed everything. Everything for humanity and everything for creation. Christ's resurrection, his overcoming human death, and his rising bodily into heaven gives each of us the hope of overcoming death. Gives each of us the hope that our body will not lie and decay forever. And the hope that an important part of who we are, our body, will not be missing from us forever in heaven. Our soul and our body be, will be reunited at the second coming of Christ. When God unites heaven and earth, reconstituting everything, making all things new that were transformed and wholly what God created them to be before the fall, totally realized, abundantly alive, and completely free, no longer held bound by mortality and the limitations that came with not being in complete union with God. In the life of heaven, all that we hope for in this life will be brought to fruition and made whole. And again, we see this in Jesus' own resurrection. So for instance, when he resurrected from the dead, he didn't dis disregard those who were important to him in this life. Who did he appear to? Who were the first people he appeared to? Like Mary Magdalene and his disciples and a bunch of his other followers and his family members. So he also shows us in the resurrection that these relationships are perpetuated into the resurrected life. They're changed, they're fulfilled, but they're not forgotten. And they don't, they don't continue unimportant. They continue to be important to us. What was important to us, in fact, that which was good and holy and true and noble, such as spouses and children and lifelong friendships, will remain important to us in the life of heaven, although fulfilled, only now fully what we long them to be, what God created them to be, made perfect and holy and righteous in the presence of the one who is love itself. Beautiful. What a beautiful vision 
of what happens to us after we die. This indeed should give us much hope, so much more hope than the view that when we die, there is nothing for us but darkness, ceasing to exist. Or that we go to some listless and restless state like in Sheol or Hades. Or that our bodies and souls will be forever separated from us. The soul continues on bodiless. Or that we have to spend eons trying to purify ourselves through cycles of reincarnation. Truly, the promises of reality that Christ offers us are the only view of the afterlife not only worth dying for, but also worth living for forever.